Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is an empowered leader who has devoted his time and energy to the idea that a refreshed state of mind can help an individual do more. His determination has supported him in his journey as an entrepreneur. He was recognized by Forbes on the 2019 30 Under 30 list with his very successful startup. We're so honored and delighted to have the co-founder of Neuro, Ryan Chen. Ryan, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Great to see you again, and I know you've got a, a story, will really be an exciting one uh, to talk about. I want to talk about Neuro, this great company that you started, and uh, thank you again for sending me some of your energy and focus gum. Absolutely. Gum. <laughs> uh, you're a Forbes uh, 30 under 30 uh, person who's been recognized. Talk a little bit about you, about your journey, and about some of what led you to where you are today. Kind of starting from the beginning, my parents immigrated here from Japan or of Chinese origin, but I grew up in like an incredible neighborhood in Pasadena, California, super diverse neighborhood. Like we had basically every ethnicity represented in that neighborhood. And I had a wonderful childhood, got to meet so many different types of people and cultures at a really young age. And there was like 10 kids on my block, all kind of around that same age. So spend a lot of my youth running around chasing the older kids in hide and go seek. And then <laughs> I had a huge emphasis on sports as well. So my parents both had different plans for me. My mom really wanted me to go into martial arts and that was kendo. And my dad really wanted me to get into golfing and got to like pick up good habits early on because they put emphasis on getting into the best dojo and finding a really good trainer for golf. And I was really fortunate to be able to kind of dabble in a lot of things from um, sports and like academics and spent a little bit of my youth in Japan as well. So from like middle school, all through like freshman year, and then moved back to LA to finish up high school. And that's really where like cross country became a really big part of my life and like endurance sports. And I think that kind of built a lot of character of kind of who I am now. So what are some of the things that you took away from that high athletic performance, both in kendo? I know you were excellent at kendo being a top runner. How did that help shape you? definitely like the mental fortitude and just like the stamina that you need, especially with sports. And a lot of them are team oriented. So kind of knowing that you have teammates depending on you, you push through. I think the beauty of running is that like, even if you best your time, you can always improve on your time. So you're always like kind of competing with yourself. And then with martial arts, you know, a lot of the competitions that we do were in the team section. So we got to collaborate a lot. We got to push each other a lot. It just teaches you a lot about discipline. Now, were you always highly competitive? Is that been a part of your nature? <laughs> I always say that I'm not, but all my friends would argue against that. They're like, Ryan, you're so competitive. And even if it's like something as simple as board games or card games, I get super into it. I think maybe that's just dug into me. What about the entrepreneurial spirit? You started a company from nothing. It's now a very successful, thriving company, growing company. Where did that come from? I think a lot of the entrepreneur spirit actually does have a strong correlation with the athletic drive too. I think just competition in general, entrepreneurship goes through those like highs and lows and it's kind of like a roller coaster of emotions. And you experience that like throughout your running season or your competition season while you're training. And there's strangely a lot of parallels. I think that's prepped me a lot for the entrepreneurship journey. 
And obviously like they can't prepare you for everything, but I think the emotions are very similar. Yeah. And the emotions, both the excitement of success and also certainly the being down when things don't go as well. Oh, yeah. Um, the feeling of defeat. <laughs> and sometimes people have this perception of business, right? That it's always great and successful and so forth, but we know that it's really not. It's not. Yeah. I think people always assume that like, there's always this constant win. And I think, especially with media, you see companies with these big announcements, PR announcements, and obviously most of them are really big highlights. And I think we were talking about this before, and it's like easy to get into that comparative mindset, but it's not always like a pretty journey. It's, it's not always that straightforward. There's a lot of things in the background that people don't notice and, and it's okay to struggle. I think that's part of the journey. It's part of the fun. It is interesting because people will see either pictures on Facebook, pictures in social media or whatnot, and they get this idea of success. They don't see all the other things that are underneath that are the failures or the times that we doubt ourselves or anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm guilty of that too. You know, you start scrolling through different social media channels and you see all these news and you see that like, this is not where I'm at, or this is not where I should be. And then you kind of have to take a step back and realize that this is part of your own journey and it's okay. Like going your own pace is what makes you, you. Absolutely. Ryan, I know you were talking about operating at a very high level of athletic performance, you know, both running and kendo. You had a very traumatic accident at a young mm -hmm. age. Talk about yeah. that if you would, please. Yeah. You know, I spent my whole life kind of being this very happy-go-lucky kid that was always running around. I was at a birthday party my sophomore year. I was 19 in college and we went on a snowboarding trip and I you know, grew up also skiing and snowboarding and I went off a really big jump on a storm and over-rotated and landed on my back and I was paralyzed from the waist down instantly. I knew something was immediately wrong when I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't get up. I didn't think about how serious it was going to be, but as soon as I got down with ski patrol, like they strapped me up on a board, they skied me down. Usually when they suspect it's a traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury, they try to air freight you out or helicopter you out. The storm was too bad. They couldn't do that. It was a risk for the pilot. So basically had to ambulance into one hospital, confirm that it was indeed a spinal cord injury and had to go to Loma Linda, which is like a trauma one center. And, you know, within eight hours, I was going through an eight hour surgery. My mom was flying from Japan. And the first thing I said, I was like, don't tell my mom. Cause I didn't realize how bad it was. And I didn't want to believe how bad it was. They told me right away that this is a very serious injury. You're not going to walk again. And it just didn't click with me. It just seemed like I was in a bad dream. And so, especially at that young age, you go through all these emotions of what you want to do, who you are. And then it felt like my whole world stopped in a very, very sudden way. It must have been, I can't imagine just how challenging that time was for you. What happened when it started to settle in? I mean, you had this belief maybe that at first that it was going to be okay. And when it started yes. to settle in, you realized that it was going to be this life-changing injury. How did you respond to that? Waking up from that initial surgery, seeing like my family kind of come together, like my parents divorced, my sister and my dad have like a strange relationship. And to see them all in one room, I was like, something has to be really wrong. In the back of my mind, I thought that I was going to walk out of this hospital. I was like, they're wrong. Like, there's no way this could have happened to me. I kept that very optimistic attitude, I think for the first like three to six months. And I was going through a really intense rehab. I had to learn how to like sit up again, kind of uh, figure out my balance, how to navigate through a wheelchair. I went through several surgeries within that period because of the complexities of my injury. But when things started to settle in, it was a very dark cloud and a very dark moment because 
one, everything that you thought you knew about yourself and your identity was like stripped away. All the questions arise of like, what am I going to be able to do? Like I started thinking about, which I think is very common of all the things you can't do versus all the things you still can do. And so that mindset really settled in with me in a negative way for a while, because I kept thinking, well, I can't do this the same way. And then you start going through this vicious circle. And my dad recently, like, you know, years after this, I was like, how did you even define success? Or like, how did you think that this was going to impact me? And he was like, well, for you, success was a different metric. It was how high you can bounce from rock bottom. And he was like, excuse my language, just like you fucking hit rock bottom. And that's what he said. And I was like, it really resonated with me. It's true. Your measure for success, that goalpost shouldn't just be one fixed spot. It's going to fluctuate depending on where you are in life. And so at that age, at 19, it was like, my goalpost was like, one, just trying to get back into school, just try to surround myself with friends and in a positive environment that wasn't in the hospital. And that wasn't surrounded by like beeps and nurses and doctors coming in every 15 minutes to check your vitals. Like that was like a goal for me. And then learning to drive again and graduating and my first job, it was like all small milestones that in the grand scheme of things seem like pieced together a lot of the sequence of events that led me to where I am now. Ryan, you talked about some of the dark cloud, the dark time you got through that. How did you go from that negative to the positive? You talked about the small yeah. wins. How did you stay mentally positive and how did you get to that point where you were really starting to feel more optimistic? This is a big issue within Western medicine. It's kind of over prescription of like prescription drugs, right? So I was on every painkiller imaginable and I was given everything imaginable. It wasn't like this person is like trying to get more medication than they need. It was like, I would say that I need it and I got everything. And in a weird way, I have empathy for what addiction is like because I fell victim to what addiction is without the end goal of that being the case. So it's like, no one takes a substance or anything like that, or, you know, gets addicted to something in the pursuit of getting addicted. It's like a result or a symptom. And so before I knew it, I think one or two years, I was in such heavy narcotics. I wasn't really present. I think my mental focus was just not there. And what I realized over the time was that the prescription drugs, the withdrawal pain of that, like almost exceeded the pain that I was trying to treat. So I've been off of any prescription drug for like, I think eight years now at this point, but it took me some time to realize that root cause. And I think there's a lot of those moments where you kind of have to go and experience it to realize that maybe that's not the right answer. And so for me, it took a long time. It wasn't an overnight thing. It was processed for two, three years. It sounds like it was an incredible process and thank goodness you found your way through that as you- Thank you, yeah. I think the core, I'm sorry to go back like to the questions, like the core foundation of like really what supported me through that was having an incredible support system, like friends and family, like they were there as like your support system, they got your back and they would not push you, but kind of just give you this cushion to like fall back on whenever things got difficult or things got challenging. And I think to go back on the small wins, I was like not trying to disappoint anybody enough pressure to know that I have all these people supporting me and rooting for me that like, I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want them to have to worry about me. So like for me to finish school, even though I felt I didn't know what I wanted to major in, I didn't know what my first career is going to be. I knew I just was going to go through that motion for the time being to kind of sort of give me more time to figure it out. Kudos and props to the friends and family because I definitely wouldn't be here without them.
Well, and thank goodness, because sometimes even we don't realize the impact that we have on other people, right? I mean, just being there, being present, being supportive can make all the difference in the world, whether it's in a traumatic situation like that one, or even a small one, the challenges we go through every day to be there for the people around us. Yeah. And sometimes like a simple text or a phone call makes the world of a difference because you really don't know what someone's going through mentally. It's like hard to read someone's mind, but uh, the emotions that we go through are all the same. Like It's all relative. I think I've realized that the pain or the trauma that I might've gone through is the same pain and trauma someone else is going to go through at some point in their life. And so being able to understand that that's all like relative is helps me kind of cope with my life and then move forward and, and try to bring that positive energy to other people's lives. Well, you're right. That empathy for other people. We've got no idea what other people are going through. Even someone we're just talking to, they could be carrying all kinds of things with them. So exactly. being able to touch them. What did you do after that? So you got through that, you went back to school mm-hmm. and what happened next? Yeah, I was back in school. I was living with like one of my best friends at the time who was studying pre-med and then ended up getting his PhD in stem cell research for spinal cord injury, which is like incredible. You know, it happened to be that one of the top researchers for stem cell research for spinal cord injury was at UCSD. And um, that's like an element that helped motivate me. I was like, I can't give up. There's people like really fighting for me and kind of just going through school. There was a period of time where like I wasn't going to class. I wasn't like in the right mindset to go. I was lucky because I had friends that would give me their notes and I, you know, I had to just go through that motion. And I think like that first two, three years was that struggle. And I, I started to kind of turn the corner of like, well, if I'm going to go through life, why half-ass it? And like, why not give it my best? Like that I got one shot and I'm lucky to be alive. Most people who had gone through what I went through probably wouldn't have gotten that second chance. So I started to like apply myself a little bit more and try to reach for the potential that I knew I had the same potential that I knew I had before my accident that I thought was taken away from me and during my accident. I realized I was just always there and I just had to really just try. I just had to wake up in the morning and find that motivation. Was there something that opened your eyes to that, that greatness inside of you was always there? Was there someone who inspired you or what was the spark for you that helped you realize that? I felt like it was like something that had died, but it's really, I think humans are super resilient. We're very adaptable. You know, I had one of my best friends from high school, Marcus Haney, and he's an incredible person that can convince anybody to do anything. And he was on this adventure with incredible musicians around the world, sneaking into music festivals and then touring with them from like Coldplay to Mumford, Elton John. And he was making this documentary about his journey through life and finding his passion. And he convinced me to go on that trip. And I think that was the first time I had traveled since my accident. I think I was like maybe two and a half years or so into it. Like my first, like, you know, getting in an RV and going out and venturing out. And that opened my eyes. And I think, I don't know if that sparked the travel bug or this idea that, oh, like there's a lot more that I can do. It's really about mindset. It's the can do type mentality. Not, I can't do this. I'm not going to even give it a shot. You mentioned it's really about mindset and it's really kind of hard, isn't it? Because sometimes we see people who've got mindsets and we see, the potential of what they can do, or even within ourselves. Joe's mindset can be negative at times. It's like, how do we, shaking ourselves out of that is really what so much of life is about. Mm -hmm. I think in remembering those negative moments too, whenever you're going through these like waves, because it's never like a constant, like knowing like, I remember feeling this self-doubt and this negative type of mindset. And then you remind yourself of like the highs and the positive ones and, and that motivation and you can't feel that positive without the negative. You need that balance. You need that relativity. No, there's no question. The two things go together. They're hand in hand. Yeah. Ryan, you are also in the U.S. Paralympic team. 
I trained with them. Yeah, that was a trip. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was 2012, 2013. I ran cross country and track for Acadia and our school was really good. We came seventh in nationals my senior year. I was co-captain. And after I graduated, our team like ended up winning like two back-to-back national titles. And I think that was like ingrained in me. Of I never thought of myself as a runner. And then our coach, Coach O'Brien, who's like the greatest coach in my life, was like, everybody's it's kind of born a runner. It's just a mindset thing. And so I kind of had that goal of always running a marathon after my injury. I was like, well, I can't run a marathon. And then I was like, well, found out about wheelchair racing and hand cycling. I was like, I can still do this and looked into it a bit, got connected with someone who was willing to kind of show me the ropes and teach me. And I remember I got my race chair and within three weeks, I tried a marathon, (laughs) which was like, Ralph thought I was like insane, but I ended up finishing it, but it took me like four hours or something and I was dying. I was also hooked. And from there I got to train and then fly out and, you know, train with the U S Paralympic team and see like the best of the best doing it and like how they've made careers out of it. It was just an incredible experience. I was really lucky to train with them. I never fully committed to move out there and try to go represent the U S but it was just being there and around that energy was an awesome experience for me. It had to be pretty incredible. I mean, being around (laughs) people who are training at that level and really Mm -hmm. driving themselves to that kind of performance. For sure. Yeah. I've been lucky to kind of experience different sports and different levels, but that's the top level. And it was humbling to see. And I got to meet a lot of really cool Olympic, Paralympic athletes through that process. And I think that was the moment I realized that I really wanted to take that drive and apply it to business and take that idea for neuro and, and make it into reality. Well, let's talk about that because one of the things that you and I have talked about, we look at Neuro, this company that you started from nothing, successful, growing, you're a Forbes under 30 recipient, recognized as a leader. So you've got this successful business. And at the same time, people sometimes don't realize all that went into that and all the ups Mm -hmm. and downs and so forth. So where'd you get the idea and what was it like starting Neuro and what was your journey like? So Kent, my co-founder, I met my freshman year. I think my first day at school, we met in class and we just automatically hit it off and then just found him to be like this Renaissance guy, just so fascinating, good at everything, art, music, happened to be training professionally too at the same time. And, you know, he's training with the Olympic judo team at the time and basically mixing supplements in his dorm room that was essentially looking back on it, version zero of neuro. He was like mixing white powders that he was researching. He was a neuroscience major. I did econ and chem, and I think we're just always fascinated. It's like, oh, this is what we should be taking, not, you know, the energy drinks that are being marketed out there, like all these other pills. And so we were kind of experimenting with that. I was like the guinea pig. Kent was like, you know, mixing it. I was trusting him to do it. We we're roommates. It's actually before my injury. And so when I was in the hospital and Kent was coming to visit me, you really solidify that bond. And for us, it's more like of a brotherhood. And I've been so lucky to have him in my life. And it wasn't until years after we had graduated, we were getting our scuba diving certification and we're super tired because we're trying to cram it, I think in like four days. And we were like, oh, I wish we had these energy pills with us. And like, we definitely don't want to drink coffee or Red Bull while you're scuba diving. And, you know, and we're just like, what if there's a more convenient way to like have energy and consume it? And so that was kind of the idea of it. And we were, you know, sitting on the idea for a while. And then we didn't know how to go about like even starting a company or where do you manufacture gum? It was like, we started Googling and finding manufacturers, calling them. We both got full-time jobs to try to save up money to do like a MOQ kind of like R&D run. And we eventually ended up launching the business because we told ourselves if we don't do it, it's always going to be this good idea that never happened. And we both never wanted to regret 
that in life and just not give it a shot. So what role did fear play in any of that? Were you afraid or did you have to overcome fear or was it just not even a consideration you're going to do it? I think there's always the fear of like quote unquote failure, but I think the fear of not trying at all supersedes and definitely is way worse. So, you know, going back on that, Ken and I have always been the type of people that say like, let's just give it a shot. If it doesn't work, at least we can say we tried it and move on with life. And so we've always kind of had that mentality of giving everything that chance. So like even with scuba diving, it was at the time, like we both didn't have full-time jobs. I think we were just like kind of floating around and we just graduated and, and it was like, well, we should do this. We have the time now. Like, why not do it? Scuba diving seems like it's the coolest thing. 70% of the world's in the ocean. Like <laughs> let's open up that side of the world. And we kind of carried that mentality. So same thing with business. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't really know about any investors, like angel investors or anything like that. We just knew that this is the cost. It was like, I think 2,500 or $5,000 to get like a, a sample run. We're like, this is how much we need to save up to do it. We know what we want to put in the product. Let's give it a shot. It was a very long grind. I mean, we've been at it almost six years now. It's kind of crazy. So you said it was a long grind. I was going to ask you if it was just kind of a hockey stick. People have this view that you start and all of a sudden it just takes off. Did it take yeah. off or was there ups and downs? What? Yeah, I think if you think about overnight success, then there's definitely a collection of many overnights, then you can call it an overnight success. But we've been fortunate to pretty much almost more than double the business every year since we started. And, you know, the first year and a half, two years, we we're both working full time jobs while trying to support this kind of idea, the side hustle. So I was working at Hulu, I was doing data and strategy, Kent was working at Wava Studios, which was a subsidiary of Sony Music. And so he was a music producer there. And yeah, we were shipping product out of Kent's place. I remember the first shipment came, it was like 4,000 pounds of gum. I guess the truck driver was assuming that it was going to be a you know loading dock and it was going to be a proper distribution center. It was like loaded up at Kent's condo in downtown LA. Luckily, the doors were wide enough to put a pallet through, but we basically stacked that gum from floor to ceiling across the whole apartment and slowly sold over that inventory, I think for like almost a year. We sold through it and we were able to make improvements on the formulation and the flavor. It was a long grind. I mean, we're both working two full-time jobs, packing boxes at night, watching TV while we're just like manually putting together shipping boxes and going in the morning in the USPS to drop off shipments. But it wasn't glamorous, but looking back on it, they're like some of the most fond memories I've had about the business so far. But was there any particular breakthrough moment for the business? We decided to go on Indiegogo because like, we didn't know how to advertise a product or get some distribution. So we figured that that would be a great platform online, which is non-dilutive equity, pre-selling product and getting the product in front of potentially like hundreds of thousands of people. And so we hit our goal and then we got featured on like Time Magazine and then Dr. Oz, like after the campaign and Kent was really active in the Reddit community. So within the Reddit community, there's a nootropics thread and we branded the gum as a nootropics gum early days. So we got a lot of support from the Reddit community. And so and I'm sure what's nootropics. Could you explain that? Nootropics? Yeah. It's, it's basically a collection of like supplements or active ingredients that help with cognitive function. So it's like kind of just a fancy word, but there's a lot of different nootropics out there. And that there's a really strong niche community in Reddit that talk about that and what they're taking. So luckily Kent was very active in the Reddit community. And when we were launching the company, he dropped it in the Reddit thread and a lot of people came through. And you were also in Shark Tank. That was more recent. Yeah. We shot Shark Tank back in September, 2019. And by then we had pretty decent distribution. We were 
at CVS, we just lined up our you know first couple of POs with Whole Foods and you know, we're top five grocery brand on Amazon, Launchpad, and we're a growing business for sure. And so, you know, what started off with just two of us packing boxes at the house, we've grown the team and, you know, we're going international this year. Like I said, there was a lot of times where we're running out of money and like having to figure out really creative ways to make ends meet, you know, whether that was, I don't advise this, but like cashing out 401k from my Hulu to kind of pay the legal bills to kind of get us to the finish line on like some cash flow payments. There's a lot of crazy little stories, but I guess looking back on it, it's just part of the entrepreneurial spirit. You took risk and certainly yeah, for sure. many times you ask people when they get toward the end of their life, if there's something you would have done different, a lot of them say, I wish I'd taken more risk. So mm-hmm. you did that. And it sounds like that's really worked out for you. In the grand scheme of things, I, I see others taking way bigger risk than me. And I think, like I said, we can fall victim of like that comparative nature. But for us, for our situation at the time, it was a big risk. What we had to go through was, you know, what we had to do to like have the company survive. And I think similar to like a sporting thing, you're going to just power through because you, your teammates need you. They're looking up to you. They're looking for your leadership or your guidance. And you just have to try your best. How do you define leadership, Ryan? Yeah, that's a great question. I would define leadership as being able to motivate yourself and your team to do the best that you can. And so for us, we have a pretty set standard of like mission and values and being able to abide by that and make your decisions to always revolve around the mission and values, I think is core to good leadership. I think making sure that everyone that's working with you, they're taken care of, you know, that they're valued. And I think that's really key. So valuing people is clearly a part of what is important to you. I mean, do you have a core mission or value that galvanizes the company? The core mission for us is to make health more accessible. So like right now we have energy and focus, common clarity, we have a multivitamin government coming out. We kind of want to take everything that kind of sits in the medicine cabinet and just make it more accessible. And we want to do that in a sustainable way. You know, a big part of our company's values is trying to lower the amount of carbon footprint we have on packaging, on manufacturing, and we want to donate the proceeds that we have along the way. So, you know, Kent and I have always imagined, like, if we sell the company, then we can make all this change XYZ and donate and give back to nonprofits. And, you know, luckily along the way, we've been able to partner with really cool charities to donate proceeds, like in small incremental amounts throughout the process. That's been really eye-opening for us to be able to join in on this incredible foundation that Daniel Lebeski from Kindbar and their company started called Frontline Impact Initiative. And so they were donating millions of units of snack bars, and there's 30 other brands that partner with them to give it to COVID doctors and nurses, EMTs, firefighters, like everybody that like were on the front lines. And we were lucky enough to meet Daniel Lubetsky on Shark Tank. He was our guest judge and connected, and he became a friend and a mentor. And we got to hop on in that and see that product being caffeinated and energy is great for people who are working on the front line. So it showed us that there's so much more that we can do and give back. And that's been great for company morale. What we're doing by action is reiterating the fact that our actions are being represented by our our company's mission. Well, it's great that you've been able to do some of those things now. I mean, you mentioned your original thought was, hey, we'll be really successful and then we can do these things. You've integrated those things right now. You've said, why wait? Let's make sure that we're having an impact helping other people while we're in the business. Let's do it right right now. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes you think that there's very concrete chapters of like, if this happens, then I can do that. And 
we realize that we can just do it throughout that process and just do it over time. And that's been, like I said, been so good for company morale. And we get photos from doctors and nurses holding up a pack and saying, thank you. And we get handwritten notes and, you know, our team shares it and it feels really good. It feels really good to give back. And it's something that we don't try to advertise, but I think internally it's really important. I think going back to that question about leadership, it's really important to make your team feel valued. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, you and Kent started as really employees, number one and two, and then you started to hire people and grow the business. And I know firsthand how hard it is to do a startup, to yeah, motivate absolutely. people and so forth. And what were some of the people challenges like? Was it easy? Did you just have a team that everyone came together and worked together? Or did you have oh, yeah. things you learned <laughs> along the way about how to inspire other people? I think everybody has different personalities. You have to balance that and understand different personality types. I think if we have a common goal and then understanding putting like two people in the room together that have different like management styles or different like working styles, how do we coexist and how do we work together as a team? And so, you know, we try to do team bonding events, which are fun to try to like mix things up. And I think our leadership style has never been like crack the whip. It's like, Hey, let's like rally together. Like we all need each other and goes back to valuing everybody on the team. But it's hard. Hiring people is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. What have you learned in that process of hiring people? Any tips for people who always try to look to hire good people? You know, what you see on paper is not really how they're going to like operate. It's a piece of paper with a resume. It shows like what their experience was. And I think really you have to evaluate and give it a time period, see like what your guys' chemistry is like. So I think for us, like we really try to put everybody as like a part of the approval process, not just like management deciding, yes, this person is going to get hired. We're going to plug this person into the team. Like we really want to get everybody from the bottom up to sign off on it too. And getting to the stage where it's harder to do that, but I think it's important to make sure everyone feels comfortable. And I think, you know, at a certain stage, that's highly unlikely to do, but right now at our stage, we're still nimble enough and flexible enough to be able to have more of a buy-in. But it is a relationship. What I hear you saying is we want people to feel important. We want to listen to people. We want Mm -hmm. to hear what their thoughts are. Maybe we can learn from those thoughts along the way. So what I hear you talking about, Ryan, is really in what ways can we engage people as effectively as possible? Yeah, absolutely. What you see on the output is like strictly work. And then, like you said, like what you see in the input, you know, things that they're maybe going through personally or things that they might be struggling with and too shy to like speak up what we try to do is like get them maybe on -on one-on-one where they feel more comfortable to tell us like what's going on. Like, is there anything personally that you want us to talk about? Because we're all people at the end of the day and we're all going through something. So having that empathy, I think has helped us be better leaders too. Like I said, not to crack the whip, but like really lead by love and compassion, I think really brings out the best in people and helps bring out that potential. It's worked for us so far. Awesome. That's great. Ryan, as you look back at your life, at the different things that you've done or not done, does anything stand out as maybe either something you would have done differently or a risk that you didn't take or something that you've learned and said, boy, I wish I'd done that? I guess in some ways, I wish I could have done it sooner. There's moments in my life where it was a very long lull, I think earlier in my life when I was going through my accident and self-doubt. But in terms of like regret, I don't regret any of my decisions. In a lot of ways, sometimes I don't even regret going off that jump because I've learned so much this process and what I thought took a lot away from me and closed a lot of doors. It's opened a lot of doors of opportunity in different ways for me. This quote I heard recently through my really good friend, Ben, 
anxiety is caused by living in the future and depression is caused by living in the past. And I think if you're living through life with regret and I should have done that or would have done that, you're going to get trapped in that cycle where you're not living in the present and you're not looking toward what you can be doing to improve your life. So short answer is like, I don't regret anything, but I wish I could have just realized that sooner. It's a great insight and thank you for sharing it. I'm wondering if you can share how you stay present to the moment, because certainly every moment has the potential of challenges. We were talking about mindset a little bit ago, right? Yep. And so how do you maintain that positive mindset as you face challenges? I think you do have to reflect on the past because like when you look in the rear view mirror, everything is like 2020. This makes sense now and all the dots are starting to connect. I think to stay in the present, I struggle with on a daily. I have to constantly remind myself that living in the present is what's going to allow me to just better myself and improve myself in different aspects. It's really easy to get caught into the future. And, and that's, to be honest, like what causes me the most anxiety is like, I'm seeing like other people doing X, Y, Z or succeeding at like this time frame, And then I'm like thinking about where we could be or where we should be, you know, that causes me anxiety. And that actually decreases my productivity and like my output. Right. So it's that constant reminder. And I think it's this flux when you realize you're going too far into the past or the future, you got to try to reel yourself in. And I try to do that by just like jotting down on a journal. Like I don't do it every day. I'm not that disciplined, but I'll jot down like certain things of gratitude and things I appreciate writing it down helps me kind of reflect back into the middle. Certainly it's hard to be grateful and unhappy at the same time. <laughs> and another yeah. thing you touched on, which is that the comparison trap is real. And it never leads to any place positive. Mm -hmm. But so having said what you just said, what excites you the most about the future? Some of the stuff that's really going on is terrifying, right? With the scientists coming out with these reports and climate change. And I think as soon as government's going to invest more and companies are investing more in a more sustainable future, that's really kind of exciting to me. I'm, I'm holding up some packaging that's like completely biodegradable and stuff that like we're moving our products into. And that excites me a lot because ultimately at our core, making money and having this like business that can give back is great. But if we don't have a planet to live on, it's kind of meaningless. So that's been a huge priority for us is like really finding like these post-consumer recyclable goods and type of packaging. And Kent and I are really excited about kind of taking some of our proceeds and donating into these climate change type funds and eventually actually building out another sustainable company and a sustainable brand, whether that's in the packaging or printing industry. Well, thank you for your focus on sustainability and you've hardwired it into your mission. And it sounds like it's something that's important to your team. It's important to your people. It's important to the business. I also will say it's a great product. So this is much fun <laughs> for Euro uh, for the gum and the mints. Thank you so uh, much. I really am uh, enjoying them. Any final advice that you might want to offer? Life is short, so just give it a shot. I don't want anybody to live life with regret. And I certainly try to live by that mantra every day. If you feel like your back's against the wall and like all opportunities are closed, if you take a moment to look around, I think there's other doors and opportunities that do open up. Yeah, my advice is just to never give up because I've been in the position where you really do feel like you want to give up and lights out and that's not the way. Well, thank you, Ryan, for being an inspiring leader. And thank you for thank being you. with me today. It really has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. 
check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.